0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Okay, welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Leah Kalmanson, author of Cross Cultural Existentialism on the Meaning of Life in Asian and Western Thought, published in 2021 by Bloomsbury Academic. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Leah.
0: Thank you for having me, Malcolm.
1: Of course. Uh, So let's dive right in. What is the main argument of your book and why did you think it was important to write?
0: Uh, It's funny. I was just thinking about uh, this book over the past few days uh, because of this interview. And it's it's some years in my past that I really started uh, working on it in earnest. Um, And I remember thinking at the time that I had all these aspirations to sort of transform myself into a sinologist, but realized that really my language skills were never going to catch up with that aspiration and, and thinking, you know, maybe I should just go back to my roots, which are really sort of my own existential questions as a philosopher. Right. And I always have had a background in existentialism and phenomenology. So that was the initial um, sort of uh Post tenure, you know, I sort of had gotten through the tenure process and I thought now I can really write about what I just want to write about. Um, so that was the initial inspiration for for the book. Um, and then I guess if I had to sum up uh, uh, the, the argument that the the book is making, it is trying to make a point about certain assumptions um, in Western existentialist discourses regarding the the phenomenological exp- content of inner experience, we could we could say Um and thinking about discourses outside of the Western tradition that tend to use terms, categories, Uh, Ways of framing ideas and questions that don't map on, uh, that don't support those same assumptions regarding the nature of inner experience, but that nonetheless do talk about inner experience in very, very interesting ways. And so my goal was to just think through some of my own existential questions while relying on the resources and the the heritage, um, uh, the sort of rich intellectual histories um, of various Asian uh, philosophies to do that so that was the that was sort of the the idea behind the book
1: great and you mentioned a little bit there your own existential questions motivating you with the subject matter and um so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what got you interested in the subject matter what your background is with with asian philosophy that brought you to this particular set of texts and and thinkers
0: oh right i mean I guess I'm a, a 14 year old with an existential crisis at heart. You know, I still have sort of basic questions about the, the, the meaning of human life, where we come from, where we're going, um, how we live lives that, that have value and meaning, uh, and the sources of value and meaning in that sense. Um, My original background was indeed uh, in philosophers like Heidegger and Levinas. So I was was studying continental philosophy and I was kind of going down a path toward specializing in phenomenology and existentialism. And I ended up, though, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, um, where I specialized originally And the Japanese philosophers that are part of what's called the Kyoto school and 20th century uh, Japanese philosophers who some of them studied in in Europe under some of the other uh, philosophers that I was already familiar with. That was my original entry point uh, into Asian traditions. And I just started at that from that, from the Kyoto school, wanting to contextualize their intellectual lives better for myself. So that's how I end up studying uh, Japanese Buddhists, right? Like Dogen. That's how I go back even farther and end up studying Sung Dynasty um, Chinese Confucians, or the term that I use in the book is Ruists, right? Which is a somewhat a better translation that maps maps more closely onto the Chinese term for the tradition. Um, and why I started trying to, trying to deal with the languages myself as much as I could um, it was to contextualize uh, the thought of the Kyoto school, but I ended up with a much more uh, sort of generalist, I, I guess, approach to philosophy. I'm not quite as specialized, I think, as, 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 as I could be in any one particular tradition, which is often how academia kind of wants us to become, right? Very specialized. Um, and, but I, I tend to, to, to be very interested in the intellectual, the sort of trends of intellectual history where these different traditions, these lineages, these thinkers have interacted with each other. And the kinds of philosophical conversas- conversations that have resulted, so that that's also part of what informs the book.
1: And so that lets you draw some some of these interesting connections across multiple traditions, which you which you do in in the book. And um, one of the terms I want to start with that uh, you use is speculative existentialism. So um, can you explain what, you know, because the, the book is cross-cultural existentialism, but then you use this term speculative existentialism. What, what is speculative existentialism in your understanding?
0: I wanted to call the book speculative existentialism, but the press, and I love my editors at Bloomsbury. the press, you know, probably rightly said it wasn't as informative of a title uh, as the one that, they winded, that we ended up going with. But basically the idea that, and I think this this holds for, the kind of linguistic turn that analytic philosophy takes right as well as the phenomenological turn that continental philosophy takes and these roughly these both of these terms happen in roughly the same time period um and and it's kind of a turn against spe- speculative philosophy right it's a turn against metaphysics in some senses uh on, on the the continental philosophical side of things it's a turn toward the immediacy of lived experience as the route from which philosophizing happens as opposed to right speculative metaphysical theories. Um, and I, in many ways, embrace that turn. You know, like I said, my background is in phenomenology. Um, and yet, maybe this is still the part of me that's a 14-year-old with an existential crisis. I, I still have these, you know, I have questions about the nature of reality. You know, I, I really do want to ask speculative questions. Um, I want to explore them um, uh, with the resources of philosophy as well as perhaps the sciences or other sort of avenues by which we might ask these questions about, about you know, what's real. Um, So that's why I thought, as opposed to a kind of existential phenomenology, right, what I'm interested in is an, is an existentialism that remains speculative, right, that maybe is to some degree resisting that phenomenological turn. Away from speculative metaphysics, um, and coming back um, to to asking some of those 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 speculative questions. So that's how I understand speculative existentialism. It's going a bit against the grain of the dominant phenomenological trend that has tended to mark existential philosophy in the twentieth century.
1: Great. And you, you start the book, I should say, the book has four chapters. Um, they're, they're long chapters, so four sounds like not very much, but there's a lot packed in here, right? That, uh, and the first chapter starts by situating existential inquiry in in the West, broadly speaking, if we can put that term in square scare quotes. And um, what you've just been talking about with um, that turn in the first chapter, you talk about this distinction between the objective and the subjective, where I guess the objective would be something like thinking about metaphysics. Um, but help us with that distinction because you you push against it and you, you try and dissolve it or break it down throughout the course of this book. And I think that relates to what you're talking about here with the speculative existentialism. So what's, what's that um, – What's that duality that you're talking about in the first chapter?
0: Right, and there's kind of two parts of this because I think in many ways the phenomenal the phenomenologists that I work with already push push back at that duality as well. And part of my question in the book, though, is then do they have embodied practices, uh, method-, method methodologies uh, for enacting that? non-dualist philosophical vision. So in some ways, what I'm doing is is, is is reinventing the wheel, very much so in that there are discourses in contemporary existential inquiry, and I go through some of these in the first chapter, that do tend to fall along a kind of a subject-object divide. But certainly there are other more phenomenologically oriented existentialists who also, like me, want to push back at the way those discourses tend to fall. But the basic idea... Um, uh, the part that I, I guess I, I take um, a critical stance toward in that first chapter are some uh, discourses which tend to frame the question of meaning in two ways that there is uh, the subjective perception of things that are meaningful or valuable as they they feel, appear, or are experienced by me. And then there's this other question which we tend not to want to broach is there anything actually meaningful out there and that's often how it's framed right Is there anything kind of outside the mind as it were uh, uh, that 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 is itself meaningful um or 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 is meaning in life more or less something that I am investing into it um so this question, you know, sort of arises if meaning in life is more or less my experience of meaning in life and something that I invest into it. We deal, we still, we still come back to this sort of notion that in a if there are no longer humans around, you do have a kind of a cold, dead, meaningless universe, and and these. Discourses are very interesting, but for me, that that they just kind of stall out at that moment, right? That there's no real way to that's I think why people want to resist the speculative turn, but I mean, or want to not, yeah, want to resist the sort of speculative move, I should say, um because it is hard to answer that other question, right? Is there really meaning out there? Of course, we we don't really know or we think that we're sort of turning toward religion at that point or something else, right? Um, and, and I wanted to say, well, Many in the phenomenological tradition have said, and I think very well, uh, that question's poorly phrased. That question is already assuming a kind of picture of a metaphysical subject who is interior and a divide between the subject and the object. I mean, this is, you know, uh, a very sort of... uh, this very sort of heidegger one oh one, right? The idea that the self is already in some senses outside of itself ahead of itself, that it's in it's in a larger immersive uh, phenomenological landscape, um and that that it is not sort of from its center projecting meaning forward outward onto things, right. So Heidegger also wants to disrupt this notion of the 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 idea that the the subject is the one who, Invests meaning in its experiences, or projects meaning onto an, a sort of an inert, objective material world around it. Right. So Heidegger's already disrupting that. So that sort of part of it is nothing that I'm bringing new to the table here. But then the question is, right? The question is, if we want to embrace this non-dualist, and by that just meaning um, a, a, a model that that thinks. Uh, outside of the sort of a strict subject-object dualism, if we want to embrace this as a sort of meaning-making activity, right, as, as, the, as the, the foundation for our own meaning-making activities, what, how do we actually do that, right? You know, I can read a lot of Heidegger, do I feel better? Do I live a different life, right? Do I do things differently? Um, and that was part of my question. Um, I was very inspired at this moment in working on some of this content by Pierre Hadot, and his work on the Greeks and what he calls the spiritual exercises of the early philosophers, this idea that, these practices, these embodied spiritual practices, many of them sort of contemplative practices, were philosophical methodologies. They were scholarly methodologies. It was how people did philosophy. And of course, we in academia today don't really do philosophy that way. Um, or, or if we do, we maybe we do it in kind of a piecemeal way, but it's not central to our disciplinary identity in the way that it might have been in the past. Um, at that same time, I was really um, enjoying learning and exploring. Song Dynasty Ruist thought in in the Chinese context, right? Um, And thinking about the contemplative practices that very much marked scholarly life for them, um, and the contemplative practices that did serve as scholarly methodologies for them. You may know Hado's larger point, right, is that a lot of these spiritual practices at the time where sort of philosophy and theology begin to divorce each other in the, in the, in the history of Western thought. Um, a lot of these practices get folded into monastic settings, right? So they become uh, spiritual exercises in a, in a, in a monastic con- a context, right? In a Christian context. Um, and so just thinking about how, well, it's interesting, right? We can look at the Ruiz tradition and say, well, here's a tradition that didn't make that particular split, right? Didn't, you know, didn't make that, didn't follow that same exact trajectory in its own intellectual history that preserved a lot of its scholarly methods, um, these spiritual practices that Hado might, as we might borrow Hado's term, Um, And so then thinking about how I could look for myself, again, as someone who has questions about these things, what practices might I, as a scholar, be doing to be a better phenomenologist in a sense, right? To sort of live the theories that I also, in my own philosophical work, embrace at an intellectual level.
1: For listeners who don't know, when is the Song Dynasty?
0: it's 960 to 1279
1: okay great and so this is the in in China uh, Ruist as you say a Confucian context but your second chapter in the book starts out with a a Buddhist uh, and so there's there's an interesting sort of journey that you take us on in the book so let's let's turn to the the second chapter where you talk about and I'm gonna not quite get her name right I'm sure a Korean Buddhist nun Um Kim Eergap um, who is someone that you look to to help understand the sort of some of these practices and ways to push against this objective subjective divide so can you tell us about who who this person is why you're starting with her and then we'll get into the song dynasty and sure Buddhism.
0: yeah absolutely so that's an, the Kim Eergap is an amazing Thinker, um, amazing philosopher, uh, and another amazing philosopher today. Jen Park has translated, you know, Kimi Thope's work, um, and has also done some philosophical work on Kimmy Thope and her thought um, and her methodology. Right? She, she, she. Uh, Jen Park has talked a lot about um, autobiographical writing as a philosophical methodology as a result of her work on Kimmy Thope. So I, th- there was a little bit of an aesthetic move here for me. I just saw these amazing resonances between some passages in Kimmy and passages from George Bataille, who, you know, speaking of like, you know, 14 year old me with an existential crisis, you know, I used to read a lot of Bataille and, and was always sort of bothered by him. He's a very troublesome figure. Um, but also his just sort of earnestness and this kind of move that his, his kind of orientation toward this kind of self-transcendence that he sort of is, that uh, marks a lot of his writings, like the like the books on inner experience, um, and 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 the book on Nietzsche. Right, those are the two that that I really read a lot as a younger person, um, and but also feeling very exhausted by Bataille. Right, he is a very exhausting thinker. Um, and, and and then looking at these kind of parallels between what Bataille is talking about and what Kimi Lope is talking about and how she's offering us a much less exhausting vision. It's a really kind of invigorating, optimistic vision of things um, and thinking of her as an existential philosopher, right? And so I, I, I began to sort of play around with just putting the two of them side by side. I'd always been interested in... Um, Bataille's brief engagements with Buddhism throughout his writings. Um, He didn't seem to know a whole lot about the actual karmic uh, sort of economy. I call it a karmic economy in the book that underlies uh, Buddhist sort of uh, merit-making practices and the rampant accumulation of merit, um, which to me speaks to Bataille's work on economy in ways that he probably would have didn't know about. Um, And that led me just, again, sort of following the this sort of aesthetic connection that I saw between his, his, his writings and Kimi Lope's writings that led me to, to, to look at some of these amazing passages in her work where she seems to be talking about both karmic activity, um, meritorious activity, and the activity of emptiness. I mean, she, she talks about it in very active Terms, um, I think for you know maybe some Buddhist out there, she doesn't sound like such a technical Buddhist, right? The way she uses language, it's very much her own. Um, and thinking about how, and so again at the same time, I'm doing this all this reading in the Sung Dynasty about energy uh, sort of based contemplative practices in the, in both the Ruist and the Taoist context. And I'm thinking this seems to be informing what Kimmy Dope is saying in a Buddhist context. And so if I'm making a very small, minor point as a kind of intellectual historian in the book, um, or, or maybe sort of the, 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 the budologist I wish I was, <laughs> um, it's that, it's just that this, um, what I call later in the book, qi-based worldview, so if we think of qi as the kind of matter-energy matrix that sort of sustains what existence is in a Chinese context, um, that that qi-based worldview seemed to me to explain why Kimi Dope is talking about emptiness as a power that a person can wield, right? Emptiness as a kind of energy that the creative human being is able to kind of use um, to manifest value, right? So she almost, you know, she sounds sort of Nietzschean at times, and her kind of like sort of this will to the to create value. It's really amazing writing, um, but I just saw all these, you know, sort of this heritage, this longer heritage of intellectual thought in East Asia connecting Kimmyo back to earlier Chinese precedents, right? Uh, Regarding energy work as a kind of contemplative practice, maybe not that kind of strictly Buddhist understanding of emptiness, right? She's clearly got something else going on when she talks about emptiness. Um, And so that was my, the way I sort of put the book together, I thought, well, Kimmy Dope and George Bataille speak so well to each other. Let's kind of have a chapter on them. And then that will take me up to this moment where I'm going to try to answer what it is that Kimmy Dope's really doing that, that is so different from the Buddhism that anyone like Bataille would have understood. And it's because it is this kind of energy-based language of chi that's informing uh, her understanding of basic Buddhist dynamics like karma, like emptiness. Uh, right. So then that's my bridge to the to the Sung Dynasty material that comes
1: next. Yeah, let's pause for just a second before we move to the Sung Dynasty, because um, the understanding of Buddhism. Well, let's let's just back up and say, what is the understanding of Buddhism that would normally be in sort of opposition to or different from this idea of this tea, uh, this energy? Um, what, what is the emptiness of? that you're talking about here for Mahayana Buddhism um, and how, maybe I'd say a little bit about how karma fits into this, this sort of karmic economy, and then we can make that that connection. Yeah.
0: Right. So the basic idea being that things are, in, in traditional Buddhist analysis, I would say, things are empty of a um, any kind of eternal or separate core being, right? They're empty of own being. Um, and in that, we mean that in terms of humans, empty of anything that might map onto something like an eternal separate self or an eternal separate soul, right? So things are empty of inherent existence, um, but nonetheless do exist, uh, thanks to the interconnectedness um, uh, uh, of, of things that sustain us in our temporary composite manifestations and those temporary composite manifestations are kind of held together by these karmic networks right that the way why we are as we are and why we have the particular interdependent arrangement of things that we have in the world that we're living in is because of the the, the forces of karma that hold hold these situations together so this is true you know for Buddhist analyses of heavens and hells and other realms right none of them are eternal they are specific karmic conditions and they do not out Last that karma, right? So once that karma is worked through, these contexts, like all other things under Buddhist analysis, are temporary and and disappear. Um, so that that's you know a very kind of quick quick sort of account of the way emptiness is used. Um, And then, of course, when you get to the East Asian context, you do see a change in the use of emptiness, right? It it does become a more commonly used term. in that context. And and I have done a little research to kind of figure this out for myself. My, my, my very minor intellectual history point is, is, I think, justified. There's evidence for the fact that part of the differences, part of the different use of words such as emptiness in the East Asian context come from the fact that um, they are being mapped on to Existing Chinese precedents. So, for example, um, Ji Lu Liu, an amazing contemporary scholar, does amazing work um, on and one of her really you know pieces that was formative for me is on the question of whether nothing exists in Asian philosophy. Um, and her point is just this: is that these words that we tend to use to mean emptiness, and some of them we use this way because they were indeed used to translate the Sanskrit terms for emptiness when they were coming in to to China they really are modifying terms. They mean empty of, and then something else, right? So, so empty of form is a very common one, right? So, so, so uh, it, reality in its most sort of primordial state is described as empty of forms, right? So formless, um, but not, and this is her, this is her point, right? It's not a kind of a true brute nothingness. It's not simple non-existence. Um, and so, what is empty of forms, again, is reality in its most primordial state. This is also highly potent. It's a highly potent source of future forms. Um, so the fact that emptiness begins to be spoken of in the Chinese context, once that word is used to translate Buddhist texts, it does give it a different flavor. And so there is some evidence for the fact that the turn the that the that, that traditions like Chan take uh, or Zen, uh, and, and the kind of rhetoric around emptiness in those traditions is sort of underlaid by this idea that, that emptiness itself is dynamic, it's active, um, it is a state of potency, which again is because the word changed a little. Um, it was used to translate shunyata coming from the Sanskrit, but, but it, uh, the word that was, the words that were chosen had these precedents in, in earlier what we might call cosmological like sort of cosmological context in Chinese discourses um, that that give a little bit of a twist um, to the to the meaning of what we mean you know what we mean by emptiness. So so it's not just Kimi, though. I guess that was a long way of saying it's not just Kimmy though. Um, but her her use of emptiness is so uh, straightforwardly dynamic. She really does just sort of describe it as a power that you can wield. You know, sort of a power of creativity um, that you can wield um, to create things and to create value, right? To create meaning. Um, But yes, I did that. Kind of answer. I think I I feel like I I strayed from your original question there a little.
1: That was perfect. (laughs) Uh, Just trying to get a a grip on what the 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 basic background is here for for her, Uh, because it sounds to me like when we think back to the original question that you have, you're already pointing us in a direction of someone who has some practices. Uh, Buddhist meditative practices and uh, Mahayana non-dualism, even before we get into the uh, involvement of the East Asian context in qi, is something that pushes against that objective-subjective uh, dichotomy that you were addressing in the first chapter. Is that is that fair?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. So so it's not, though, like you're saying, just um, Mahayana Buddhism. You have this idea of qi. And you talk about the Songming Ming um, philosophers and their understanding of this sort of creative potency of qi. So that gets us to kind of meaning, meaning making and uh, maybe meaning finding too. So we, we talk about Zhu Xi here in, in, the, in the book. Um, so introduce us to Ju Xi. He's really important um, just overall and also in your book. What, what is his work contributing here?
0: Yeah, he is one of my favorite philosophers. Um so a Sung dynasty ruist. He he's sort of known for reinvigorating the tradition. Often um you'll see Uh, his name discussed as one of the early members of what we call Neo-Confucianism, often in English language discourse. So he kind of resets the agenda for the um, academies, the Ruist academies in China at the time, saying, don't just come here and study and memorize things in order to make good grades and sort of pass your civil service exam, but come here and do it because scholarly work is itself a transformative practice that's going to create, you know, sort of a better person out of you. So, you know, please pay attention when you're reading because it's changing your mind, you know, sort of very literally almost is changing your mind. Um, So I love him because of his approach to scholarship and his approach to sort of learning uh, and reading and even just the act of reading being a transformative process. I found that very, very um, inspiring. And when you dig down right into into his writing or any of the writings of, of people from this this time period, it's clear that they have what we would call a chi based Understanding of the mind. Um, And for anyone who's not so familiar with that term, if anyone knows, you know, sort of Qigong as a as a as a energy based sort of contemplative um, exercise that maybe people are familiar with, it's it's um, it's this basic idea, right, that there are different ways that or the tradition itself conceives of the body, the person as a kind of an energetic complex, right? So there's bodily aspects, but then you also have multiple spiritual energies that are mental energies that reside in the body that move about the body and that also can interact with the environment outside the body, right? Um, When you open a book for Jushi, you need to be in control of these particular mental energies. You need to get the mind into a a, a certain kind of settled state. He tells you to sit still. Uh, He tells you to sit up straight. He tells you to hum, right? You think about humming as creating vibrations in the head, right? That are kind of having this. I, I hesitate to say this is a kind of physicalist notion of the mind here, but I really do. This is part of what is a a driving question in the book is what do we mean by inner experience? So here we are meaning, you know, not kind of just the, the inner experiencing mind, but mental energies that are usually unseen, but which can be palpable outside the body, right? So it already just puts us in a very different, a very different, um, gives us a very different dynamic of what we mean by inner experience. And the cultivation of inner energy is seen to have, external efficacy in this tradition. So if you want to read a book, right, you need to get your head in the right state, you need to get your mental energies in the right state. And then when you do read that book, not only will you be a better learner, but eventually after you've done everything Shi says, which is like, First, you memorize the classics, then you memorize the commentaries, then you memorize the histories. And then if you have time, he's like, you can read fiction or something, you know, you can read, you can read other things. But, you know, once you've really cultivated yourself to that point, you're not just a better learner, but you're a better creative scholar in your own right. So, again, in the same way that formless chi is also the source of future forms, the mind in its calm state is the source of new values, meaning ideas Uh, And and ultimately, you know, for a sage like being uh, new palpable forces in the world around that person. Um, So the idea that the mind is able, the settled mind is able to be is also productive, really grabbed me. And I really thought, you know, for someone like me, who's kind of a phenomenologist dealing with this question of. What is inner experience, and what does this mean? And looking at, at at again, like people like Heidegger, like other phenomenologists who also want to push back against a certain kind of subject-object um, dichotomy. This idea, right, of the, the 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 mental energies of the mind easily crossing the skin barrier, as it were, um, and having efficacy. Uh, not just kind of moral potency, but even sort of potency in the world around them was very interesting to me. And and then again, you know, sort of thinking about my original interest in Hado and going back and recovering philosophical practices, the fact that Jushi is just full of advice was another thing that I liked a lot. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Jushi is informed by Buddhism in his his context and in his writings right so I, I have a kind of a, a method question that that comes out of this you're the, the kind of reading that you're doing here the sort of juxtaposing um, and intellectual respect for the context but also a sort of creative bringing together um, it sort of just makes me think a little bit about your comparative method, and this isn't too much of a stretch, just thinking back to how someone like Ju Xi is, is creatively engaging with, with tradition. So I don't know. I, I would like to hear a little bit about how you're bringing all of these ideas together. If you have thoughts about your, um, your methodology and how, how these reading uh, comparative reading practices uh, are, are happening in your book. I'd like to hear a little yeah. bit about that. It's
0: funny. I was just rereading a book by um, Doug, berger a really great one uh, the luminosity and personhood book that he has which is a great book and he he says in his introduction you know we comparativists today think we're so we're doing something so fancy and new but really you know these philo- there have been these comparative philosophers at so many times in history and his his intro- he he was talking specifically about those those philosophers who facilitated the translation of sanskrit texts into chinese right and just the the kind of um, amazing intellectual work that was done to accomplish that um, but Jushi is another great example and everyone in that kind of, uh, period of time, you know, th- the, the story that's usually told about Neo-Confucianism, um, is that it was spurred by an attempt to meet the popularity of Buddhism, right? So you kind of have this very, uh, interesting and, and, and persuasive, uh, uh, sort of Buddhist cos- cosmological vision, right? Um, that, that's brought in. Um, and so there's this attempt Uh, by some scholars to answer that with their own speculative philosophy. So actually, you know, Jushi is considered taking as taking a speculative turn. And then later on, there's kind of a Philological backlash against Juxi, um, in, in East Asian intellectual lineages and this kind of resistance to what they saw as Juxi's ridiculous speculative metaphysics, um, and kind of, a, a, a call to go back to the texts, right. Go back to Mengzi, right. Go back to like the, the, uh, the early, the early Confucians and go back to the core kind of moral and political insights, you know, that they, they associated with the tradition. Um. And so Jushi himself was, was even though he remains hugely influ- influential, there was some turn against what were, what were seen as his speculative tendencies. But yes, he was informed by Buddhism. He was well-read. Um, he was informed by what the Taoists were up to at this time period. Um, and to the extent that that even some of, if not influence on him directly, but an influence on the practice itself, this practice called quiet sitting in the Confucian context was certainly influenced by Buddhist practices of seated meditation. Um, but there are also uh, plenty of Taoist sort of seated contemplative postures that, that are also at play here that predate Buddhism as well. Um, but all of these traditions were very much in communication with each other. At the level, I would say, of the the academics, the intellectuals, in competition with each other, you know, that's the, I think at the level of a lot of people's everyday lives, there was, you know, they were very much uh, complementary traditions and people probably were practicing little bits of, of, you know, from here and there. But the scholars were often trying to make argumentative points, ultimately about the, 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 uh, their tradition being the best, right? Uh, And Jushi is no different, right? He is sort of, in a sense, trying to ward off um, an interest in Buddhism that he perceives uh, as growing and kind of try to bring people back to what he sees are are the resources that the Ruist tradition does have um, for, you know, contemplative methodologies, uh, for spiritual transformation, right? You don't have to go to the Buddhists for your enlightenment. You, You know, we too talk about radical spiritual transformations in our tradition,
1: yeah. So you mentioned Taoism as well. So let, let's try and put another piece of the puzzle together here, because there's overlap, uh, as you say in the book, between uh, Ruist or those uh, sort of broadly Confucian, as some people will know it, um, tradition. Um, but there are also difference here. So what what are the Taoists thinking here about Qi, and how is this informing someone um, like Iryup in her... Um, her work. So, uh, what's going on there?
0: Um, at the risk of oversimplifying, and I probably will be oversimplifying, I will say that generally speaking, this chi-based cosmology, this chi-based worldview, or what's sometimes also called a correlative cosmology, um, is common to both the Taoist and the Ruist lineages, sort of all Chinese lineages, really. Um it, it it informs basic assumptions about what the world is and how it works and what human beings are up to in it, right? Uh, so there, there, even though there are are plenty of differences in practices, um, and I myself am less familiar with the sort of amazing diversity of Taoist practices historically right and, and and I did sort of limit myself to the specifically the scholarly methods of the Ruists because again I think coming out of my interest in Hado here and this question of philosophical practices that's what spoke to me at, while writing the book. Um, but I would say generally those two are aligned with each other in 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 both sharing in these sort of chi based assumptions regarding just again basic things about how the world works, you know why 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 cause and effect happens the way it does, right it's It's an explanatory framework for why things are as they are um and then that you know, to the extent that Buddhism influenced the indigenous Chinese traditions, they certainly influenced Buddhism. and I think by the time you get to someone like Kim though, I would say less so Taoist sounding she you know has uh statements on self cultivation and the power of the of the the kind of the sage like self right that the enlightened being as a kind of a sage like being that kind of you know imagery in the chinese context of the north star right around which everything else revolves right and her image of the enlightened being i i would say it, it it's not, I don't think it's too sort of controversial to say that that Buddhism in this context is informed by Confucian social values, right? And so I would say probably less, less the Taoist kind, because Taoism tends to get pretty particular, you know, f- pretty specific tradition, right? Whereas Confucian values, I think, are pretty broadly infused in the East Asian context. So to say that Kimi, though, is reflecting sort of an overall sense that the enlightened person is also a moral exemplar and an agent of social change, you know, that sounds to me, at least that sounds as Confucian as Buddhist
1: easily. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the book, you're sort of going back and forth. At uh, least, Lisa struck me this way between these historical particularities. Uh, so looking at uh, divination practices, commentaries, which are very historically situated, culturally situated, as well as these larger questions that seem like pretty, uh, uh, you know, existential questions for all human beings: w- what is meaning? How do we make meaning? Um, I think in in chapter four and in the end of the book, you you hinted this and talk about it a little bit, but. One question that I had was, how do these very particular practices, which have a a sort of a cultural home, how do they address these questions? I mean, so there's, you know, divination, the I Ching. Is this the sort of thing that, you know, these particular practices are ones that, you know, Western people should be taking up in order to make meaning? What's what's the link between the historical particularities and sort of these bigger questions, I guess?
0: Yeah, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it was John Cage, the musician. Maybe it wasn't only him, and it was other people, or maybe it's not him, and I'm mistaken about who it was. But some artists of that time period, right, were using the I Ching as a kind of a inspirational source. Right, they would they would use it as a way to create ideas to to um, heighten their own creative powers. And so we can definitely think about this book, right? So this book, which is asking you to identify the connections between things and to do so by paying attention to patterns. Um, right. Which is, you know, sort of meaning making at a very basic level, right. In terms of the human mind looking out, seeing things that happen regularly and saying, huh, right. What does that mean? Um, that we can think of it in a kind of a, what's the word I should use, like a demis we can sort of demystify that by saying, well, yeah, it just, it triggers all these thoughts in my head when I, you know, flip through the book and I, I use the I Ching and I make some connections and I come away from it more, you know, kind of creatively reinvigorated. I have new ideas. Or, right, we can think about the I Ching divination practice as, as, as someone like a Ruist might have thought of it, which is, Let's first settle the mind into its most creative and potent state by um, calming the chi-based mental energies of the person, right? Calming the person complex down so that the chi-based mental energies are often the, the, the imagery is like a, a calm mirror or a calm lake, you know, or a mirrored surface. Um, and then let's engage the book, right? And then from this kind of wealth of mental potency that I have, bring forth new meaning, right? So there's this way we can kind of demystify the use of the I Ching as a divination tool. Um, and this way that we can also think about it, though, as a kind of energy work that does indeed palpably engage in the human sort of person complex, but also um, around the person, right? Because the, 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 the greater the person's energies are, the more concentrated, the more effective, the more effective that person is in social contexts in affecting other people, right? So that was sort of my, I really like picking up some of these practices that maybe don't always get pulled into a philosophical discussion um, when, when people are working comparatively. Because they are seen as something that maybe borders on the religious, um, or because they're or, or when they are pulled in, they're kind of demystified in that sense, that they're kind of uh, shed of maybe some of the underlying mechanics that inform how people would have understood that book working. Like, just why does, why does it work to, to use the I Ching? Well, it's because we have this chi-based worldview, right? Um, <clears throat> and it's because when the mind makes these connections via the book, they're not just inside the brain. You are really creating value in that sense, right? Creating new connections, creating meaning. Um, so that right, so it, it it is kind of I go back and forth in the book between my own larger existential questions, and then I think trying to get, I try to pay minute detailed attention to the actual practices. How do you actually use the I Ching? What what assumptions underlie you know underlie how that book ma- m- works, um, and what kinds? Of, what does it mean to think about these as philosophical practices for people today?
1: Yeah, and I think this gets to in the fourth chapter where you talk about ritual, which of course is important for the the Ruist tradition as well as I mean Buddhist um, meditative practices. Or you can talk about them in terms of ritual too, depending on how you you understand ritual, which is part of your point, I think, in the last chapter about um, you know the, the importance of a philosophy of ritual. So you you talk a little bit about how ritual is not. Um, you know, if we think disciplinary divisions, like you were saying, people think of rituals firmly in religious studies or or religion. Um, What's philosophical about ritual? Um, What's philosophical about these ritual practices that you think are important?
0: Yeah. I went down a while back, years ago, way before I was working on this book, I went down this just real rabbit hole of researching uh, ritual efficacy, right? So this is sort of in the field of religious studies. Uh, There are some people that focus on ritual efficacy, but it's that same dynamic that I think I'm still interested in the book. There's this tension, right? Between thinking, okay, I've performed a ritual. Let's say, you know, um, uh, I was going to I was going to try to attempt an example from the Jewish tradition and then was immediately reminded of the fact that I know very little about my own religion. So I'm not going to try to attempt an example from the Jewish tradition. But let's say I have performed a ritual. And the question, of course, I think in the contemporary context is often, you know, is that something that's maybe psychological, psychologically useful for me? Is it kind of cathartic? Right. Or does it really do something? Right is 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 the uh you know it, does something really happen? Is the water really turned into something right in in the ritual right? Um, and that again, as many phenomenologists would say, is a poorly framed question. Right, there are other ways we can think about what's going on than just saying it's either all in your own head, completely imaginary, or it really you know quote unquote really does something. And there's really good work by bas- anthropologists on ritual efficacy that I think is philosophically really rich and interesting. And I think even though that doesn't really make it in full force into this book, that that I was interested in years ago is underlying where that chapter went. So that's one answer, right, that there's amazing work in anthropology that can help us think through, think past these kind of subject object assumptions that we might bring to the question of ritual and ritual efficacy and how kind of how we do things, maybe why what we do is effective in the world. Um, But also just in the sort of Chinese and comparative philosophy context today, of course, ritual is a major term. It's a major, it's a major term of the discourse, right? Because ritual is a major term in the Confucian tradition. Um, So it is a philosophically rich heritage there. I wouldn't say that what that tradition means by ritual exactly maps on to what we're talking about, you know, if we're an anthropologist today doing work in ritual efficacy, but obviously there are there are certainly connections because in the, in the Confucian tradition as well, you are also talking about rites and ceremonies, um, civic rituals, uh, ancestor worship, things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and maybe I should reflect back on my own question, which could be poorly formed just by distinguishing ritual from other, other actions. Perhaps I was leading us down the wrong uh, direction. One of the the points that you make in the last chapter as well is that, um, you know, um, forget who you're. You're quoting that. You know, maybe this dichotomy between ritual and other actions is is not very well well formed. Can you say a, a little bit about that in the context of what you're trying to do in this book?
0: Yeah, there's kind of two lineages. I think of that particular thought. One is sort of process philosophy, which has been very influential in <clears throat> in sort of Chinese and comparative philosophy. And so, just this idea that what we do is what we are. Right, that 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 processes do underlie beings, and beings are not ultimately substances. And so, this idea that we are sort of ritually constituted beings is is also a way to say we are sort of habituated beings. Right, we are our habits. And so, yeah, there is a sense in which ritual can become a much more broader, inclusive term of activity itself. Um, activity, at least that that produces identity. Right, that produces. Beings, Um, but there's also in the anthropological work on ritual efficacy. They themselves are very uh, influenced by people like uh, Austin and the theory of performative utterances, right? So they take ritual in that direction, where it's sort of like, you know, there are different levels at which we can talk about speaking something into being, right? And we can talk about it in a way that seems to invoke the supernatural, but we can also talk about in the way of saying, you know, I do when you get married, right? And you sort of speak into being the 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 relationship um, in its institutional form. So those two, for me, have always been more or less aligned discourses, right? A kind of a process-based thought that, that undercuts a kind of a substance-based metaphysics, right? Or a kind of a substance ontology. Um, I feel like I'm using so much jargon right now in this interview. So apologies to to any listeners. Um, but so that kind of process-based view, and then also that kind of heritage of, um, the question of performativity in, you know, sort of analytic thought, but also people like Judith Butler taking, perf- you know, performative utterances, performative actions as the basis of identity so that beings really are, again, ritualized beings, then um, that 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 kind of gets at that sense in which ritual is core to who we are on a daily basis.
1: Great. So the last, last part of the book here, you map out some uh connections between some sort of central terms in east asian thought and some central terms or i should say maybe rather concepts in um in existentialist thought and we don't have time to go through all of them but some some of them and include maybe i'll say some of them and we can you can reflect on 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 some themes here stillness uh jing and alienation um, you have, uh, sincerity, Jung and, uh, authenticity. Um, uh, let's see, what are some of the, some of the other spontaneity, Ziran and freedom? Um, maybe either, maybe, you know, is, is there, is there some of the, one of these themes that's really, um, central to you or how do you see this kind of mapping happening here? I thought it was very, um, suggestive and interesting and going back to Europe's, uh, sort of meaning making, ideas. I guess, bring us to the conclusion here. What, what are the connections that you're seeing here between these traditions? They're, they're very broad and, and different. Yeah.
0: Maybe to kind of pick up on the point I just made that ritual constitutes people, right? It constitutes beings, sort of constitutes our identity. So if we're looking to change, right? Uh, identifying ritual techniques for change seems to be important. Um, so part of this was my attempt to look at some of the core themes of Euro European existentialist discourse, like authenticity, freedom, things like that. Um, absurdity, I think is one of, that I, yeah. Um, and thinking through not how do I want to address that at the level of theory, but how do I want to address that at the level of practice? Because ultimately the book does come back to the idea of philosophical methodologies as, as embodied practices as, and by that point in the book, we're talking about ritual practices. Um, so then thinking about where, um, Chinese and East Asian, uh, discourses give us tools to come and say, Oh, we have this question here about authenticity. Um, how can we address this in a way that is, um, that leads us toward greater thriving, right? That that's kind of uh, uh, following through on what I think, you know, at, at our most generous is this sort of optimistic existentialist vision. How do we meet that? question here that existential philosophy is giving us with some resources that maybe it wouldn't otherwise go to. Um, So my attempt was, and I actually was, I was really worried about that section of the book. I thought, is this kind of too cutesy? You know, I'm sort of lining up these terms. If you notice, they all start with the same letter. I couldn't, like, I couldn't help myself. Um, But it just seemed to work. It seemed to kind of fall into place. And I was at the concluding point in the book by then. And I thought, well, you know, this maybe is a good way to kind of wrap it up, right? To sort of come back to some of those key Uh, terms and categories of, of existential philosophy in the 20th century, and really talk in more detail about what we've done in the book, and how they can address some of those, how these new techniques that we have now can address some of these key themes, and help us think about inner experience in this context in different ways.
1: Great. So, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure listeners understand about the book? Is the the answer to the question of the meaning of life found in the book somewhere here that we haven't we haven't covered? <laughs> um, forty
0: two. No. Page forty two, um, <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um. I. Uh. No. You know. I. I. I I struggled with the end of the book, too, because it's one of those things that I knew when I got myself into this, I wasn't going to have answers to questions at the end of it. Um, but nonetheless, I did have, a, I think I feel like a lot more insight into maybe some of my own questions. Um, and I was really, I walked away from the book thinking, you know, I've I've always a little bit been attracted to the idea of having a religious home or a philosophical home. I don't know. I, I grew up, um, as a religious minority, sort of, I was a Jewish person in the South. And so I was always a little bit on the outside of Southern culture, a little bit on the outside of Jewish culture as a result of not having, you know, it was just our family. There two families, two Jewish families in that town. And so I feel like I've always been kind of looking for a home and not, not always really finding one, uh, looking for a kind of greater ritual, uh, sort of fluency myself and not really having it. Um, and, and then really just coming away with a, a new sort of love for the Ruists, because I thought, you know, one thing I am, I'm an academic, right? I am a scholar. I read books. I teach students. I write things. And the Ruists are really telling me like, yes, you know, this, this can be a sort of a fully realized ritual technique, right? This can be sort of a fully realized spiritual practice. You know, scholarship is a spiritual practice. And that really spoke to me. Um, I still don't. You know, I want to get up and do my Qigong every day, and I don't. So I'm still not really achieving that goal. But it did, if anything, I think, you know, I think Buddhism has kind of been, just for various reasons, dominant in kind of comparative ph- philosophical discourses that, that, that are in an existentialist vein. So if anything, I do hope the book kind of brings more attention to the heritage of Confucian thought here, right, um, and these Ruist practices um, for, for the existential sort of vision that they offer.
1: Great. Well, that's a great note to to end on. I've taken up a lot of your time, so let's just conclude by. Uh, what are you working on now that this book is is out and, and published?
0: Yeah, I, I do have a new project. Um, the the tentative title is Local Gods. Um, the tentative subtitle might be uh, a philosophy of spiritual diversity. Um, but it's it's really a work in philosophy of religion. Um, but it's really an attempt to not not let philosophy of religion be generally cast in the mold of a monotheistic theology, right? So often the questions of, of philosophy of religion are the questions of a theology. Um, and they are they are questions that sort of orient toward the assumption that the, the right philosophical questions to be asking are about a kind of a monotheistic God and what that means. Um, so I'm looking at land-based deities I'm looking at place based deities. I'm looking at how the cultures themselves um, have theorized about them, right, how they philosophize about the nature of these local gods, uh, how local gods interact with each other uh, across time and cultures throughout history. Um, And so I'm really excited about it. There's a lot of research yet to be done. Uh, for it, but yeah, it's it's this. I've kind of gotten drawn into almost against my will into some of these um, circles that are doing really good work in philosophy of religion, um, global critical philosophy of religion. My former colleague Tim Nepper, current colleague still actually, but at the school I used to work at um, does this amazing work. Um, and that was never really my background, but I think it's, it's, it's because philosophy of religion uh, tended to seem like such a sort of theological enterprise. And so having been drawn into this much more interesting work that he's doing, this is, this is where it's taken me this sort of question of, of uh, local gods and how we interact with uh, local place-based uh, deities.
1: Great. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that in the future. Thanks very much for your time, Leah.
0: Thank you.